Well, good morning, Lakewood. We're going to continue in worship this morning as we continue in Genesis. We're in chapter 2, so if you would turn to chapter 2 of Genesis, and we're going to read just three verses here to get us started. And if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, this is Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and earth were completed and all their hosts. And on the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from all his work, which he had created in making it. Heavenly Father, we pray you are blessed by the reading of your holy and inspired word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the seventh day is marked by completion. Yahweh's perfect work is finished completely and perfectly in six 24-hour days. The Hebrew word here for rest is best translated as ceased. Yahweh ceased from his work. Not ceasing in exhaustion, but ceasing in satisfaction. What's so amazing about Genesis 1 and 2 is there was absolutely nothing. And then God created absolutely everything. And then there was absolute peace and absolute rest right here on day 7. God has modeled for us peace and rest for the first time right here in Genesis 2. So the question is, have you found rest? Have you ceased from your striving with this world? Do you have true peace this morning? I'm not talking about being happy. I'm talking, do you have true peace? Happiness is fleeting. Happiness is temporary. But true peace is a peace that abides. It's an elusive thing today. So elusive, in fact, that the world can be rightly divided into two groups, those that have true peace and those that do not have true peace. But make no mistake, every person in this world seems to be striving to attain this true peace. We see it every day. The whole economy is built on attaining true peace. Million-dollar marketing and ad campaigns push images to drive this and wear that and drink this And travel there. And if you do, you will be all that you can be. And you will find nirvana. And you will find true peace. False religions know this better than anyone. And they traffic in exploiting people. Promising them true peace. Hinduism promises total and pure consciousness. Islam makes five promises that include a good life here And then paradise to come. Mormons, they got the best offer, I think, of all. If you're into space travel. Because the men, as you guys know, many of you know, they get their own planet. And then they get to populate it, right? Catholicism, Mormonism, the JWs, Seventh-day Adventists, Judaism, Hinduism, Islam, and every other cult. Even the one that we ran into at ShepCon, They all push a works-based system, and they all operate the same scam. 
if you do this and you do that and you do this and you follow all the tenets of our religion, then you will have health, wealth, prosperity in this life and you will have paradise in the next life. I mean, that should give you peace, right? I mean, that's how Joe Olstein can fill a 25,000-seat arena, right? Every Sunday by promising success and material things and good health if you just have enough faith. Here's what blinking Joe makes his congregation repeat after him, among other things. He says, God is going to supersize my dream. He says it just like that, doesn't he? Now, that's a message that'll pack a stadium, won't it? I mean, who wouldn't want to get their dreams supersized? I mean, that message works, sadly. Why? Because that's exactly what Satan wants them to hear and believe. So what's the bottom line here? The bottom line here is there's no true peace. There is no true peace since the fall of man in Genesis 3, apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? There's no true peace outside of that. All striving outside of biblical Christianity, all striving that is always doing, never finds peace. They never find peace. We know that in Christ. We are not always doing, but rather it is already done to tell us die at the cross. And it is the cross that Genesis 2 is going to lead us to. For it is the only way to true peace. And here's the spoiler, it's not about a day. You may be wondering, Matt just walked us through chapter 1, the six days of creation. Chapter 2 starts with the seventh day. So how can this not be about a day? But hang with me. We will get to that, that true source of peace and rest. But let's start with the creation pre-fall. Before sin came into the world, before mankind was imputed with original sin, we see creation finished perfectly. At the end of day six, some 6,000 years ago, and here it is, we find that true peace. There's no death, no disease, no decay, no pride of man, no anger, no war, no hate, no sexual immorality, no immorality at all. Eden was a paradise. Adam had everything he needed. Yahweh provided it perfectly. There was no sin, no striving. There was no toil, no work. He had dominion. There was no more peaceful place than Eden. And Adam had it really good. He had that perfect peace. This is the creation that the seventh day looks back to. And that's point one in your outline. But let's read the first two verses again. It reads, thus the heavens and earth were completed in all their hosts. And on the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. So after creating through his majestic sovereign power, the very day and light, day and night, light and water, all life teeming on earth, the entire universe, Yahweh then climaxes his work. With his grandest work of all, he creates man in his image. And we learned last week it was through the power of the triune God. Let us make man in our image. You guys remember the pronouns? 
It was the very Trinity, the doctrinal nerve center of our faith, that said it was very good. And in verse 2, we see that God rested. The word here in the Hebrew for rest is sabbat, which literally means ceased. It means ceased. He stopped, which makes sense since God would not need to rest, would he? Since he does not toil and tire as man does. So it's not a relief from exhaustion, but rather, again, the enjoyment of accomplishment, the joy of completion. Verse 3 reads, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from all his work, which God had created in making it. Meaning this day was set apart. It was sanctified. It was holy. The only day, as Noel mentioned, that God has set apart this way is holy. So Yahweh has modeled for us to cease striving, to cease toiling, and to serve the Lord. And you look, and to look back at the miraculous work of creation and give Him glory. And although does not, God does not need cessation, He does not need rest, He does not need peace, we do. And that's why Scripture gives us so many examples of God granting us peace and rest. Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Here before the fall, we see God ceased his work for this time, but post fall, his work resumed. Jesus told the Pharisees in John 5, when they were persecuting him, he said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Since the fall, the whole Trinity's been working and is working right now. Then when the Pharisees were again trying to play gotcha with the Sabbath in, in, Sabbath, in Mark 2, Jesus was saying to them, Consequently, the Son of God is Lord even of the Sabbath. Meaning Christ's sovereign rule and authority superseded everything that the Pharisees had concocted. As the Lord of the Sabbath... He could do at the Sabbath whatever he wanted. And remember, the Sabbath observance was not codified as a commandment until Moses received the law at Mount Sinai. So over these 1,400 years, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they never observed the Sabbath because it wasn't until Mount Sinai that this very day would become the sign of the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. And please don't miss this, this declaration of eternal deity of Christ, that Christ is not only the Lord of the Sabbath, but he's also the creator of man and the Sabbath. So we see three things in our three verses here. Day seven was the capstone of creation, perfectly finished. Number two, that God ceased from his creative work. And number three, that God set the seventh day apart as holy. The establishment of the seventh day was the basis of what would become the fourth commandment. So why is the Sabbath so misunderstood today? Why, with Judaism expanding the Sabbath like it was a government program? We also see how the Seventh-day Adventists and the Hebrew roots and some Baptists and Presbyterians and even our precious Reformers and Puritans, they got it wrong too. 
And the danger of getting something wrong in Genesis, in Exodus, is you get a thousand other things wrong, including the worship on the seventh day, making Sunday the new Sabbath. The error, this error is personal to me because as a new believer, a Hebrew Roots friend had convinced me that I needed to start worshiping on Saturday, the Sabbath. And thankfully and providentially, God sent a brethren brother. I'd never met a brethren person before, but this is the first one I ran into. And he set me straight. I thank God for that. So I pray what we cover this morning will be edifying because we all have friends and family that are caught up in this deception. So let's fast forward 1,400 years to the fourth commandment when the seventh day was codified on Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. We find the Sabbath observance right in the middle of the ten. Exodus 20 reads, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of Yahweh, your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave, or your cattle or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You know, if you go by word count, the fourth commandment gets more treatment than the other nine commandments. This being the only one of the two times the Ten Commandments is listed in the Pentateuch, the other one being Deuteronomy. And although this is the most lengthy of the commandments, it's not hard to understand, is it? It reads, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. God has set aside a special day, a particular day as holy unto the Lord. Reading, for in six days the Lord made in heaven, heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And notice this, this ver- verse comports precisely to our verse in Genesis 2 that reads, thus the heavens and earth were completed and all their hosts. And on the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done and rested on the seventh from all the work which, which he had done. So the Israelites were to follow God's example of setting apart the seventh day from all others. Why? It's to look back on God's wonderful creation and repent over what was lost. Taking a day to rest from striving, ceasing from their toil as a memorial to Yahweh who created all things. Now, how do you mess that up? We have a really good idea how Judaism messed that up. And that's legalism. And does legalism ever bring peace and rest? Quite the opposite. Legalism came in around the third century. Jewish tradition records that 613 commandments called the mitzvah were were added to the Torah. 248 positive commandments, those are the do's, And then 365 negative commandments. Those are the don'ts. Notice there's more don'ts than do's. My favorite carryover of the Misbath commandments 
is the Sabbath elevators that operate today in Israel, where on Saturday, on the Sabbath, they stop at every single floor, the elevators do. You know why they do that? Because if, if you touch a button on the Sabbath, it's considered work. So you don't want to get on a Sabbath elevator uh, on a Saturday in Jerusalem. But let me just remind you that Judaism is dead as a religion. Its version of the law, the overburdensome legalism, they could chase you only as far as Calvary. And with Christ's penal substitutionary atonement, he fulfilled all things from the law, perfectly at the cross. With Judaism obsolete the last 2,000 years, we have to recognize something new has come. God has new house rules. He has a new stewardship, new economy, a new dispensation to call out a new people, his church of both Jew and Gentile into one body. This was the mystery not revealed in the Old Testament, that there would be a new body to one head, Christ, and that body would be called the bride of Christ. Jesus marked this change in house rules in Luke 16, saying the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is proclaimed. You see, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And that's why Jesus describes him in Matthew 11. He says, I say to you, among those born of woman, there is none greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So why does the church have such an exalted position? And it's not because of what we did. We sit at the most honored seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb because of what Christ did. Amen? So we know the religion of Judaism is dead. They missed their Messiah. But what about, so what they're doing with the Sabbath today is irrelevant. But what about the church? There's widespread disagreement in the church whether the Sabbath believes, pertains to believers or not. At one end of the spectrum are what we call the strict Sabbatarians. They include Seventh-day Adventists, Hebrew Roots, and some Baptist sects. On the other end of the spectrum are those that feel the, the Ten Commandments don't apply to them at all. These would be the old-line Schofield followers, hyper-dispensationalists, and hyper-Calvinists. Both are far from the scriptural mandate. That rest and peace in Genesis 2, the seventh day, was to be enjoyed and not be a burden. The strict Sabbatarians, like the Jews, have made it a burden. While at the other extreme, they ignore the Ten Commandments altogether, as if the moral law has nothing to say to believers today. But even between the extremes, the opinions vary, even with our precious reformers and Puritans. You guys all saw Chariots of Fire and know the movie of Eric Little. He was the flying Scotsman that competed at the 1924. Have you guys heard of that movie before? <laughs> I'm getting blank faces. Um, I mean, the soundtrack's running through my head right now as I'm thinking of it, right? I always get it confused with the $6,000 man, or $6 million man, whoever that was. Um, but you guys remember that. Um, Eric Little, he was a hero of the faith. And for his missionary work, but his running was better than his theology. 
Eric Little was the product of the time, of that day. And that was the Christian Sabbath had been changed from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. Listen to the 1689 Baptist Confession. God hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. And it is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observance of the last day of the week being abolished. This is standard fare for many creedal churches. What's a creedal church? Well, the Roman Catholics, Orthodox churches, Anglican communion, communion, Lutheran, and even some Baptist and Presbyterian churches are what they call creedal. That means they rely on their differing creeds as a unifying statement of faith. Today, the movement back to Reformed and Puritan Sabbatarianism is seeing a resurgence. And although we agree with much of the Westminster Confession of Faith and even the 1689 Baptist Confession, we do not support all that's in them for our statement of faith. But we do love many of their theologians even though they're wrong about the Sabbath. Oddly enough, we have to agree with one outlier named Calvin, who took the classic reform view of the Sabbath. Here's what Calvin said. He said, but there is a ceremonial aspect of this law that was abolished under the new covenant. So Calvin is saying the fourth commandment pertains to the ceremonial ordinances that were abrogated. They were done away with by Christ. Just as all the ceremonial laws and ordinances were done away with by Christ's death on the cross. And further, Calvin said, as to this reason, there is no doubt that it ceased in Christ because he is the truth by the presence of which all images vanish. Hence, Calvin said, superstitious observance of days must remain far from Christians. As the truth, therefore, was given to the Jews under a figure. So to us, on the contrary, truth is shown without shadows in order, first of all, that we meditate all our life on a perpetual Sabbath from our works so that the Lord may operate in us by his spirit. So Calvin's position was, with Christ, all the images vanish. And all truth is revealed without the need of types and shadows. So the weekly Sabbath of observance was ceremonial, given to the Jews as a memorial to the work of creation in six days. This we can agree, which leads to point two in your outline. And that is the seventh day looks ahead to the nation of Israel. If anyone is confused about the seventh day, the fourth commandment, this is critical. The who of the seventh day will make the reach of this commandment even clearer. For the answer is rooted in Israelology and ecclesiology. Who is the church and who is Israel? When I went down the rabbit hole of Sabbatarianism, it was this distinction between the church and Israel that saved me from the strict Sabbatarian teaching. And central to that teaching is Exodus 31. 
which gives Yahweh's final instructions to Moses before giving him the Ten Commandments. This couldn't be more relevant. Yahweh said to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am Yahweh, who makes you holy. Therefore you shall keep the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Six days' work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest. Holy to Yahweh, whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days, Yahweh made the heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. When he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Moses' writings couldn't be more clear. There should be no debate as to who Yahweh is commanding to observe the ceremonial aspects of the fourth commandment. It tells us three times right here, speak to the sons of Israel. So the sons of Israel shall keep it holy. So the sons of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. We have to know when Scripture scripture is speaking to the nation of Israel And when Scripture is speaking to the church, the only way the strict Sabbatarians can make sense of their position is by saying that the church is the new Israel. Are we the new Israel? It's impossible. We are not the new Israel. We are the church. The origin of Israel was coming out of Egypt for the first time as a nation. The origin of the church was on the day of Pentecost. The mission of Israel... was to be a light to the nations. The mission of the church is to make disciples in Christ. The destiny of the nation of Israel is the literal, earthly, millennial kingdom. The destiny of the church is a heavenly calling where we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. No, we are not Israel. So the who is clear, but so is the why. Twice Yahweh tells Moses, For this is a sign between me and you throughout the generations that you may know that I am Yahweh who makes you holy. And further, it is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. A sign looks ahead to something in the future, something down the road. If we saw a sign coming in the church this morning that said Lakewood Bible Chapel straight ahead, we know the sign is not the thing that matters. But the thing that matters is what the sign is pointing to. So we don't go out and gather at the sign. We gather here. The seventh day, the fourth commandment, is a sign of a coming Redeemer who will give us true peace and rest. Every covenant that came from Yahweh came with a sign that sealed that covenant. When Yahweh made a covenant with Noah, what did he give as a sign? The rainbow. Genesis 9 reads, Then God said, This is a sign of the covenant which I'm giving to be made between me and you and every living creature that is with you 
for all successive generations. I will put my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. For Israel, it wasn't about the rainbow, but the promise that it pointed to that Yahweh would not again flood the earth. And when Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham, circumcision was a sign. Genesis 17 records, And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For Israel, it wasn't about circumcision, the sign, but the promise that it pointed to of making Abraham the father of many nations. Again, Israel, it wasn't about the fourth commandment, the Sabbath day, but what it pointed to, perfect creation and six days to be enjoyed and repentance over what was lost at the fall. So point three in your outline is the seventh day look forward to redemption. Israel was to remember not only creation perfected, then creation fallen, but a creation redeemed with the Sabbath day looking forward to Christ and peace and rest being fulfilled in him. Only he offers, Christ offers the perfect Sabbath rest. He offers the perfect Sabbath peace. The seventh day and the fourth commandment observances merely foreshadowed something that was made crystal clear in Christ's finished work. The types and shadows in the Old Testament finding crystal clear fulfillment in the New Testament, which begs the question, when you have the person that casts the shadow, why would you still worship the shadow and think you're going to get some kind of spiritual rest or peace? It's heartbreaking to see people worshiping the symbol and not the substance. It's a sin to go back pre-cross and observe that which was symbolic. Because indirectly, it's saying that the cross wasn't enough. We must observe the Sabbath and the Passover and the festivals. Even though we have been graciously given the full light of revelation that the risen Savior has fulfilled all things, the Apostle Paul made clear what was the pattern we are to follow for all the Old Testament ceremonial elements, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the ritual of atonement. Why? Because they all pointed to the one perfect sacrifice. And when Christ said it was finished, it was finished in a blink of an eye. The substance Christ replaced centuries of Old Testament types and shadows. This is what Orthodox Judaism has missed today. As for the Protestants, there's not one creed or theology of any worth who has argued that the fourth commandment is not ceremonial and symbolic in nature. And furthermore, they can't argue credibly that the Sabbath was not on the Saturday, the seventh day. So ultimately, Protestant theologians have never disagreed whether this commandment had a ceremonial aspect. Where they disagree is on the question of whether Sunday is given to us as a Christian Sabbath. And there are many good Christians that believe that Sunday is both the Lord's Day, as it is commonly referred to in Scripture, and at the same time, the Christian Sabbath. They believe when Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week, God thereby changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. That's what we we saw in the 1689 Baptist Confession. Now, this is the danger of tradition. 
since nothing in Scripture ever refers to Sunday as the Sabbath. That's why tradition is so dangerous. On the contrary, Scripture is replete with references to observances of the Sabbath on Saturday, the seventh day. Even Christ attended synagogue on Saturday, the Sabbath. But before we move on, let's clarify one question that may be coming up regarding the Ten Commandments. And the question is, if Fourth Commandment is ceremonial and symbolic, what about the other nine? Are they ceremonial and symbolic? And the short answer is no. You have to remember there's three types of law in Scripture. There's the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. The fourth commandment is the only commandment that is not found in the moral and civil law for the church. And that is why there is not one single mention for New Testament believers to observe the fourth commandment in Scripture, to observe the Sabbath. While the other nine commandments are mentioned, some multiple times by our Lord Himself. So while there are commandments to not lie, to not steal, have no other gods to honor your mother and father, there are no commandments to observe the Sabbath in the New Testament. With that, turn in your Bibles to Colossians 3. This is one of those seminal sections of Scripture. I think this will really bring it all together. And I want you to see it in your own Bible, but also know we're going to camp out a little bit here uh, in this section. So it's good to have it right on your laps. We're starting verse 10. This is Colossians 2, verse 10. And this is all leading up to verses 16 and 17, but the lead up is very important. In verse 10 and 11, it reads, And in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority, in whom you are also circumcised with a circumcision without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh, and the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him, through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So these verses are saying, when we've been filled, in verse 10, it means we've been filled by God, we've been made whole, we've been made complete, our old nature has been taken away, and we are new creatures by the power of the resurrection even though we're Gentiles, no less. As the uncircumcised who were formerly far off, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is speaking of our regeneration, our salvation. And now to what we've been saved from, read verse, six, verse 13. And you being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiving us all our transgressions. Paul is saying, God, despite seeing all of our sin ledger, every item, all our sin, as vile and as blasphemous as it was, he made us alive from the dead. This is what all the commandments, the ceremonial law, the moral law, the civil law, all the prophecies pointed to, and that is redemption, life from the dead. This changes everything where we as believers are in Christ, complete in Him. And then 14 and 15 reads how it happened. Having canceled out our debt, a certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, He also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, 
having triumphed over them in Him. This is saying through our precious Redeemer, the Lamb of God who takes away sins, we have been forgiven. So our spiritual ledger that condemned us has been wiped out, it's been blotted out, it's been nailed to the cross. Christ having freed us from the ordinances that condemned us, telling lies, stealing, blaspheming, lusting in our hearts. The punish that we meant that we deserve is gone. And please get this. This is so important to understanding the fourth commandment. Since the cross, there is now absolutely nothing left to be foreshadowed. Nothing left to be foreshadowed by any types of types and shadows because of what we just went through, because of what Christ went through on the cross and saved us from our sins. Therefore, Paul summarizes this beautifully with 16 and 17. And he says, Therefore, no one is to judge you in food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul couldn't be clearer here and more comprehensive. This verse is the death knell to strict Sabbatarians of every stripe. And don't let them say to you, verse 16 doesn't apply to the, to the weekly Sabbath. Look again, verse 16. Paul has a clear progression here. So we don't miss the totality of what's been done away with at the cross. In respect to a festival refers to the annual feasts on the Jewish calendar. The new moon refers to the monthly celebrations on the Jewish calendar. And the Sabbath day refers to, you guessed it, the Sabbath day. Annual, monthly, and weekly abrogation. Why? Because the substance belongs to Christ. What a precious declaration of Christ's redemptive work being fully sufficient and being fully effective. Christ the Redeemer took it all away. All the types and shadows, once and for all. So whenever you see someone so steeped in this tradition, the only thing you can do for them is pray for them. If, if a verse like this won't open their eyes, you just have to be patient with them. As Paul certainly was, patient with many Jewish believers who were coming to Christ, coming out of Judaism. Romans 14 records this. It reads, One person judges one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards the day regards it for the Lord. He who eats, eats for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who does not eat for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So instead of defending the observance of the Sabbath, we see here instead a call to freedom. Freedom in Christ. Since we have been freed from the types and shadows of the Old Testament economy and dispensation by the one who all the types and shadows pointed to, Jesus Christ. Galatians records, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand firm. Do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Whether it was the yoke of slavery to sin or concerning the Sabbath or the circumcision, or the law, Paul is saying, you have freedom in Christ. 
not to put yourself back under the law, but rather to enter God's rest. We've looked at how the Sabbath was looking back to creation. We looked at how it was a sign for Israel, not the church. And we looked at how the types and shadows of the Sabbath have been fulfilled in Christ. You may be thinking, we know that our rest does not reside in the Sabbath observance. I get that. But is this elusive rest available to the New Testament believer? How do we enter this elusive rest of God, this peace of God? Please turn to Hebrews 3, where Scripture is going to show us the new way. And for the same reason I had you flip to Colossians 2, um, I want you to see this in your own Bible, but also we're going to camp out a little bit here. And we're not going to... We're not going to dive too deep. We're going to skim through it, but it gives us the answer. And starting in verse 7, Hebrews chapter 3, it reads, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years, Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways, and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that fails, that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, while it is said, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. For who provoked me when they had heard? Indeed, did not those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was He angry for 40 years? Was it not those who had sinned? whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? But we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So the equivalent of not able to enter his rest because of unbelief would be enter his rest due to belief. You see that? This is the promise of the way that the elusive rest and peace, and it comes through believing. This is so key that our rest is contingent, contingent upon our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. It is, not, it is only by faith in Him that our striving finally stops. Now, the other point that's made clear in this section is the usurping of the Sabbath day as the focal point of the rest and peace. The old Sabbath law is replaced by the New Testament day of salvation. Notice again and again in in this section, the focus is not on the Sabbath, is it? The focus is on today. Three times the writer reinforces the immediacy and urgency of the calling of God today. So it's not about the seventh day or any other day, but today if you hear His voice. Salvation is, not, is a now thing, not a day of the week. 2 Corinthians 6 records, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is too late. 
today, now is the time. Do not harden your hearts. He is saying, believe and enter his rest today. Now I'll look to uh, Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to fall short of it. For indeed, we have good news proclaimed to us, just as they also. But the word that was heard did not profit those who were not united with faith among those who heard. For we have believed, we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, Today, if you hear his voice, I jumped ahead. Do not harden your hearts. The text is saying God's rest did not come through Joshua. It did not come through Moses. And it is not found in the promised land. And it's not found in the weekly Sabbath. It is reserved for those who believe. Salvation is the new Sabbath rest. Verses 9 and 10 Again, say, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Praise the Lord. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. his. So what's the bottom line here? The bottom line is Sabbath rest is spiritual salvation. It's not a day of the week. I'll say it again. Sabbath rest is spiritual salvation. It is not a day of the week. Salvation and redemption in Christ is what the seventh day of Genesis always pointed to. And that's the arc of creation, of biblical Christianity. The book of Genesis beginning with the first creation and the book of Revelation finishing with what? The final redemption. So the question is, do you have peace and rest? Every believer that woke up a Christian woke up with a peace. They woke up with an assurance this morning. If you did not wake up a Christian this morning, let me tell you how this feels. While we sleep as Christians, we know that glory, majesty, dominion, and authority are at work for us. And we constantly look forward to a joyful meeting with the triune God that has been promised. Now, that is peace. That is assurance. If you did not wake up a Christian this morning, I am grieved by the burden that you are carrying. You are burdened by the weight of your sins. You are burdened because your sins are unforgiven. And you are burdened because you know that whatever you are chasing, whatever you're toiling for, and the sins that you have committed, you are going to pay dearly for each one of those. Every idle word you'll be held accountable for. It'll bring no relief. It'll bring no rest. It'll bring no peace from unforgiven sin. So if you're weighted down this morning, you've never come to Christ. Understand that the soul coming to Christ is represented as a man with a heavy burden on him. So today, if he is calling, do not harden your hearts. Repent and believe and cast that burden upon Him and He will forgive your sins. Christ is the only hope and He is the only way to true peace and rest. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the clarity of your scripture here. We know you are sovereign in creation and you are sovereign in redemption. And we pray, Lord, that those that do not know you, we pray that they wouldn't harden their hearts. We wouldn't close their ears. We pray that they would know your Sabbath rest by repenting and turning to you. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.